Hello, and welcome to Notes on History, a podcast by a historian who has no clue how to make a podcast. I'm Paul Stetzel. Up to this point, the recordings you've heard have been re-recordings of presentations I made way back in 2009 or 2010. I re-recorded them a couple of months ago and then scheduled them to be released one at a time. Now, I have a confession to make. From that time to this, I've been leading a double life. Mild-mannered historian and genealogist by day, slightly less mild-mannered historian and genealogist by night. Because while the first handful of episodes have been emerging from their slow-release capsules, I've been cooking up some new ones, and this is the first of those. As I said in the introduction to the series, these new topics are being pulled from my filing cabinets from the large number of projects I have worked on over the years. You see, for you Gen Z people, filing cabinets are big metal boxes that hold the paper versions of Wikipedia. Anyway, the next couple of episodes come from a history of my own family that I've been working on. What's that, you say? We have a chance to, to listen to Paul about his own family members who none of us have ever heard of just so he can shamelessly plug a book that hasn't even been published yet? Well, yes, of course. But the, the stories here aren't actually about my own ancestors. These two stories are actually about a couple of the more important events in American history, events my ancestors were present for, and so I'm going to take the notes I used to write those particular chapters in the book, uh, along with some of the actual text written for it, and work them into two discussions over the next uh, few episodes. The first of them is about a man named William Blackmer. Uh, he fought in King Philip's War, which you may not have heard of, but you certainly should have if your teachers were doing their jobs. But the more important aspect of his story here today is going to be how we can use indirect evidence to draw conclusions about the past. The second story is going to be about his descendant Ephraim Blackmer and his experience in the American Revolution. His story is really a story about the capture of Fort Ticonderoga and the implications it had not just for American history, but for the discussion we have about American history. And while we're at it, you may pick up some random items for your next trivia night at some hipster craft beer place. Let's start with William. And by William, I mean, of course, not William. As I said, his story is part of an as-of-yet-unfinished book, uh, volume two of a book called Notes on Some Pretty Neat People. Uh, this volume traces my paternal grandmother's family all the way back to late antiquity, which, on a side note, is not as unusual as you might think. Lots of Americans can actually do this if you know how and where to look, and you're not a stickler for strictly paternal or strictly maternal lines. Anyway... William Blackmer is the linchpin in this, this long chain of ancestors from late antiquity to today. His ancestors, as far as we know, lived in Europe exclusively, and his known descendants all lived or live today in America. His ancestry on his father's side is still unclear, though there is no shortage of theories found in the depths of the internet. His ancestry on his mother's side is provable, but... That proof is somewhat more convoluted than armchair genealogists are accustomed to, and this is why I'm interested in telling his story here. Uh, it's because it's an illustration of the roundabout way genealogists sometimes have to trace family histories. In order to do this, we have to go beyond his parents, and we have to cross the Atlantic back and forth a couple of times, but we do have several really fantastic primary source documents that help us construct this particular link in the chain. This evidence forms a key part of William's narrative, and so even though much of it has to do with his relatives, the discussion of the evidence is best had here in an outline of his life. 
In order to do this, we're going to need to look at the life of a Massachusetts settler named Peter Collimore, son of Thomas Collimore of Lushcott in the parish of Braunton in Devon, England. Peter was born around early December of 1613. Uh, this was just a few years before the famed voyage of the Mayflower. He came from a, a well-to-do family in Devon, with different branches of the family living around the estuary of the rivers Taw and Torridge. Peter's branch of the family specifically lived in Northam, which sits on a stretch of land between the Torridge and the Atlantic Ocean. His parents, Thomas and Agnes Adams Collimore, already had two sons before Peter was born. John, the eldest, was born in 1608, and Mark followed two years later. Three years after Peter, a daughter, Joan, was added to the family. Now, she is the only known daughter of Thomas and Agnes, and while we know almost nothing about her, her place as Peter's only known sister means she is of great importance to this story. Peter's father and his great-uncle both referred to themselves as gentlemen in their wills, uh, a term which might lead us to believe that Peter never had to work for a living. This was generally true, but only so in England. Once a gentleman left England and came to America, the situation in those days was, was quite different. Peter's father, Thomas, may not have had to physically work for a living, but Peter certainly learned how to do so for himself. Perhaps he seriously studied agriculture before leaving England, or maybe he learned on the fly in America. In either event, he left his siblings. Uh, his brothers in particular were better positioned to inherit their father's wealth. And he made his way to New England sometime before 1639. We know that uh, because in that year he was awarded 25 acres at a place called Namasacusett uh, by the government of the Plymouth Colony. This was the type of grant given to men who served in the Pequot War. Uh, yet there is no direct evidence that Peter had served. Plymouth militia had not yet seen action by the time the Connecticut and Massachusetts Bay militias had won the war, but even if they had, a list of dozens of men who served was drawn up by the court at Plymouth, and Peter's name was not on it. However, when he sold his rights to this land that same year to a man named Ralph Chapman, the land is described as being that given to him in return for his service, implying but not outright saying military service. If he had served, this may be evidence that Peter, like a few of the many thousands who came to New England in the 1630s, may have at first attempted to settle at Massachusetts Bay before leaving for a less religiously fanatical place like Plymouth, and that he may have served in the militia of another colony. At the very least, he was later associated with a well-known Pequot war soldier named John Harker. Plymouth Colony was by this time growing, but it was growing at a much more modest pace than Massachusetts Bay to the north. On the other hand, the swelling population of towns like Boston or trading posts along the Connecticut River provided an expanding market for livestock and grain, which brought relative prosperity to the farmers of Plymouth. In the early 1630s, Plymouth's planters had found that the prices paid for their produce were always rising, and so the original fields laid out for them were no longer sufficient to meet demand. Reluctantly, and with all the success they could have had herding cats, the government in Plymouth, uh, they tried to organize their townsmen as they spread out and formed new towns. In January 1634, or 1633 if you're an incredibly old fogey and you're using the old calendar, uh, which saw the new, uh, the new year celebrated in March, the court at Plymouth suggested that those who came to Plymouth as indentured servants should, at the expiration of their servitude, be granted land at a new town called Situate, and more on that town 
uh, later, probably in the next episode. Over the following decade, Peter's name appears in numerous records of the colony as he acquired more and more land, uh, including a 53-acre homestead at Bell House Neck in Situate, civil offices such as constable and surveyor, and he even acquired a sloop named Mayflower. No, not that Mayflower. The only thing he did not expand was his family. By 1653, sometime after learning of his sister Joan's death back in England, I slow down when I say that because it's really important, by the way, Peter became consigned to the fact that he and his wife Mary would have no children of their own. Uh, he was now involved in shipbuilding and commerce by sea, and he needed an heir to carry on his growing business. On 20th September, 1653, he wrote to one of his brothers back in England, uh, which brother in particular uh, I don't think is recorded, and quite frankly, it's not that relevant. Uh, in his letter, by the way, it still exists. It's preserved by the Society of Mayflower Descendants. He specifically requested that one of his brothers send one of their sons to be his heir, and he offered to pay for the voyage. Quote from the letter, My earnest request to you, is that you would send me one of your sons, for since God hath denied us that blessing of our own, of a posterity to succeed us in our generation, I know none that more deserve than some of yours, who may most fitly serve to bear up our name in New England. Let's step back for just a moment to say something. Family tradition does not a genealogical proof make, but in this event, there is strong evidence to support a long-standing Blackmore family belief even if the exact details are somewhat muddled. And that belief is this, that when Peter Collimore wrote home and asked for a nephew to come join him, William Blackmer showed up. Peter's letter arrived in England, probably before the year 1653 was out, and we hear often of a family tradition that says that Peter's brothers made the decision to send their late sister Joan's son, William, to America. Now, the list of things we do not know is actually quite impressive. We do not know if William volunteered, or even if he went willingly. We do not know if William had any prospects in England, which he would have preferred. We do not know if William came by himself, or if he traveled with his cousin Anthony, who also came over at some point, uh, but we simply do not know exactly when each man crossed the Atlantic. In fact, we know essentially nothing of William's life prior to his arrival in Massachusetts when Peter Amazoned himself a new nephew. There were several Blackmores in Devon in the early 17th century, and indeed one of those families lived in the Colomores' hometown of Northam. Unfortunately, at present, I have very little access to the relevant records and cannot conclusively point to a particular record for William's birth. However, uh, there is a record of a baptism in Northam in March of 1640, which appears to be our William. Now, the next part of the story goes something like this. Uh, we are led to believe by many versions of the family tradition that, one, William arrived in New England, much to the disappointment of his uncle, who had very much intended that his heir carry the Collimore name. Two, that Peter promptly sent a now lost letter back to England with a more specific request. Three, that Peter's brother John dutifully sent his son Anthony as a result of Peter's clarifying letter. So what happened? To carry the Amazon metaphor a little further, We've all had this experience. You order up a new frying pan because you want to color code everything in your kitchen, but you got the red pan instead of the purple one. Maybe you clicked on the wrong color. Maybe the people or the robots at Amazon pulled the wrong one. 
Maybe your delivery instructions mentioned your dead sister so prominently that Amazon sent William Blackmer instead of the frying pan. Who knows? That's the story anyway, and it seems to be roughly correct. And that's the story that appears in some 19th century genealogical works. However, getting there is a little more nuanced than 19th century historians realized. And I'm, I'm looking in your general direction, Samuel Dean, and your history of Situate from its first settlement to 1831. Back then, historians bought the story pretty much as told. But modern genealogists do require a little more substance to our conclusions. And as a genealogist, I annoy people all the time by asking uh, very probative questions about how we know things. We know that Peter Collimore asked for a nephew and William showed up, but we do need to ask the probative question, the obvious question, of how we today know that William was Peter's nephew and not just some rando who happened to step off the boat at the right moment. The answer to that question, the question of why we draw the conclusion that William was Peter's nephew when we don't have a clear record of Joan's marriage to a blackmer, is found in Peter's will and the fact that the story we are told is that Peter's plans were upended not only by William's paternity, but by his, spoiler alert, unfortunate early death. You see, William died before his uncle Peter. And by the way, William's death is something I'll be covering next week, along with the discussion of King Philip's War that might well get me demonetized if I can ever monetize this thing to begin with. So, when Peter made out his will... Much of his actual businesses went to his nephew Anthony and Anthony's children, who are described in his will as cousins. The use of that word, by the way, was a little more fluid than it is now. But what is more important for us is that Anthony and his inheritance-crowding little rugrats aren't mentioned in the will until much later. The order in which he places people in the will goes like this. First, Peter's wife Mary. Okay, that's obvious. Second, Peter Blackmer. That's Peter Blackmer. He was 16, well under the age of majority. He was given marshland in situate, which is actually more valuable than you might think. Third, John Blackmer. He was maybe 14 or 15. He was given what Peter Collimore described as all his lands in Saramac, but only once he turned 21. Fourth, Phoebe, you guessed it, Blackmer. She was given a cow and 40 shillings to be delivered upon her wedding day, or the age of 21, whichever came first, because that's what uncles do. Uh, cash, has a, it's such an uncle gift. I love that. Fifth, William Blackmer Jr. He was eight or nine, so while his sister got a cow and 40 shillings, he naturally got a house and 50 acres. Sixth, sixth, mind you, we get to a Collimore. Not Anthony, though, but rather Anthony's daughter, Mary. She got 50, uh, excuse me, she got 55 acres and a cow. Seventh, Anthony's daughter, Sarah, got 10 pounds sterling when she turned 21. Here we are with the cash gift again. I love how Peter didn't know what to get Sarah or Phoebe. Nah, they wouldn't want land or a means of support. Straight up cash. Eighth, Anthony's daughter, Martha. You guessed it, cash. 10 pounds, just like Sarah. Ninth, Elizabeth. You guessed it, he got her something real nice, cash. Tenth, he set up what he calls My Man William Clift, 10 acres of land. Not exactly sure what he meant by My Man, uh, but he only got his land if he remained faithful and obedient to Anthony Collimore. 
last, that would be 11th if you're still counting, Anthony Collimore got anything not already named, which uh, was a, a fair bit, and is, is why he is seen as the primary heir to Peter. So why does this imply that the family story about William being Peter's nephew is correct? Partly because they are named before the Collimores, but it's, it's not just that. Anthony and his daughters are named and specifically referred to as cousins, while the Blackmers are not. That might suggest that they were not related, but that would be the wrong conclusion. The lack of an explanation suggests the opposite. Why, you so eagerly ask? Fun fact. William died in 1676. Peter didn't write out this will until 1683 or 1684. But by 1680, William Blackmer's wife Elizabeth had remarried and the family, including the children listed above, had moved away. They no longer lived in Situate. They lived in a town called Rochester, Massachusetts. Hadn't lived in Situate for years. And yet, there was no apparent need to explain who Peter was referring to. Everybody knew it. Everyone assumed that the Blackmer children were supposed to be there, and nobody asked why. This whole thing was moved through probate in lightning-quick fashion. The time between the drafting of the will and the proving of the will was something like five months, and the inventory of Peter's estate was done a month after that, which means that Anthony never contested putting William's kids front and center. This is what we would call indirect evidence. We have a family story, which is not an acceptable genealogical proof. However, let's say that the family story didn't exist at all, and what we're left with is a will in which someone gives a fair amount of property to some unrelated kids. Oh, but their father died and they were destitute. No, no, they weren't. Their stepfather was <laughs> actually quite wealthy. So these weren't underprivileged kids living alone with a single working mom. If the story did not exist, the minimum conclusion we would draw would be that William Blackmer and Peter Collimore were extremely closely associated with each other. So closely associated that William named his first kid Peter. In any event, we're going to move on next week to the story of William's life and death. And while this episode today may have been a little dry, that's because it's the bread in our sandwich. Next week, we'll get to the spicy mustard and roast beef. And if you are easily offended on behalf of others, wow, are you going to have a problem with some of this stuff? I mentioned this earlier today. Uh, some of what I'm going to mention next week might offend those who got outraged easily, or more specifically, progressive racists who love to infantilize Native Americans instead of treating them like, you know, human beings. You'll see what I mean next week. I'm Paul Stetzel. Thanks for listening.